Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. December 13th, 2020, episode 184, Vid Visit. Greetings and welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner. I am Kevin England and I wanted to say I'm glad you stopped by to our podcast about honeybees and the practices of keeping bees and, as you'll hear, related topics. Sitting here with a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning, prepping an episode that we recorded last weekend. We're just in the middle of December and the remaining days of this year are clicking off in rapid fashion. I know there's a lot of sentiment about how awful this year has been with COVID pandemic crisis looming over us, but I find that there are a lot of pockets of experience that are enjoyable. And in this show, I have the pleasure of sharing what I affectionately call a vid visit. My twin and his family have called the COVID crisis the vid. (laughs) I thought it only appropriate that on those rare occasions where we do have an encounter with the Uh, outside world with outsiders, one that is away from the family unit that it be termed a vid visit. There's been pretty much only one outside person that I've kept in touch with directly since this whole thing started, and that's my friend in beekeeping, Bob Kloss. Bob's retired and has become a recluse. (laughs) I'm pretty much sequestered to my home working every day. And so we both feel cautiously comfortable to come together on those periods where we both know we've been home alone in long stretches and have limited our interactions with each other. So in this episode, I finally, after it seems an eternity, got Bob to sit down and record one of our chats that we have. You know, Bob and I speak frequently on the phone, possibly once a week, just to see what each of us has going on. We talk about things we saw on Zoom during the week or stuff we're doing in our yards, stuff we're doing in our garages. What you're going to hear is a pretty typical thing, what it sounds like when we chitter-chatter about our encounters since the last time we connected. Only this time, it's recorded. You'll note, and it's funny how appearances are, that we sipped on some adult beverages during the recording of the show. Honestly, and I wanted to clear the air about this, it seems like on quite a few occasions that happens, but it's really not typical. It's kind of ironic that it's common as it shows up in the episodes. In this case, the happenstance was that I went into the liquor stash to show Bob, ever clear, that I had purchased to make tincture and discovered the Cooper's Mark honey bourbon that I wanted him to try. And well, one thing led to another. We were sipping honey bourbon whiskey during the show. All in moderation, of course, but que sera, sera. I just thought it would be a bit of an impression that we were at it again. (laughs) I thought maybe it seems too commonplace on the recordings, but you could trust that we come together 20 other times and nothing ever happens. Uh, But for the recording, it's unusual that it shows up all the time. And yeah, I'll move along. In the discussion, Bob and I jumped all over the place, and none of what we spoke about was scripted. 
This is just the two of us rattling off what comes to top of mind. As such, we jump in and out of topics and ramble on here and there, but when I prepped the episode, put it all together, I realized we cover a lot of ground. In a pseudo-agenda, this is what we talked about. Bob is making some products of the Hive Holiday Gifts. We discuss the Dink Nucleus Colony that we put together in a polyhive. Bob tells a funny story about propolis tincture in Africa. We muse about the spotted, spotted, not spotter, spotted lanternfly honey. We both do a local hive report, and I was interested to hear what Bob has going on with his bees. In that local hive report, we discuss the dynamics of our broodminder readings. We touch on a listener mail that shared a varroa management technique we had heard about and discuss that a little bit, which employs brood breaks. Earlier that day, we had a honey tasting. We did a little commentary on that. And well, I warned you, we covered a lot of ground, and there's probably a couple other topics thrown in on top of that. So I think my job of setting up the episode is done. Why not get out of the way and let you hear what happened during our vid visit? So I'm going to open the show with a conversation for everybody to say, I want to welcome my friend Bob Kloss back to the program. Bob, how are you doing? Great to be here, Kevin. <laughs> you twisted, you finally twisted my Finally. <laughs> you would uh, think I, I had to back the truck up to offload some money. Where have you been? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just a little. You're like a recluse. I'm camera shy. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. yeah. People have been begging me, like, you know, we love these episodes with Bob Gloss, and I finally rallied you in and. You know, we've had three or four sessions where we've gotten together. We were going to do some recording. And yeah. We ended up being sidetracked. And today, we're actually going to sit and talk. So, yeah. happy to have you in, Bob. How you doing? How Thanks. you been? Well, I'm, I'm holed up like everybody else. Like I think I told yeah. you today, I have, probably haven't been out of my house in the last 10 days. So, uh, I I know for a fact. Let me see the last time I was out. I went to ShopRite with Sharon. That's it. Yep. In, in about four weeks, I think I've been to the grocery store. Yeah. I met you when we hung the signs for, you're the only person I've seen outside of Sharon. For the bear fence. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So this COVID thing's been strange, hasn't it, for beekeeping? <laughs> it has been. Well, at least this, this week, I was a little productive. I started making Christmas gifts, you know, products of the hive. Yeah. So I did some lip balm. So let's start there. What, what did you do? Tell me. So I made uh, lip balm, which is a big hit. The the, uh, the recipe that I have that our, our fellow master beekeeper, Landy Simone, gave us is just terrific. Everybody loves it. It's, it's a mocha mint. Yeah. So uh, that's always a big one. I also made these lotion bars, which are basically a, kind of a solid hand lotion that you just rub and the heat of your hands kind of melts it a little bit. And that's a big hit because... That has cocoa butter in it, and then I use vanilla extra essence oil, essence, essential oil. Yeah, <laughs> one of those things. 
<laughs> and it tastes like uh, chocolate chip cookies. It smells like chocolate chip cookies. It's delicious. I, I've never made those. Oh. But I have some of yours. Yeah. And I love them. But what I really like is I rub my hands till they get hot. Yep. And then I know, like, the first ones you gave me was a year or so ago. I would rub them my hands in the morning. They were dry. I would go to work. And... You know, you would wash your hands like before you go to lunch or whatever, and yeah. you could still feel the the yeah. wax on your hands. They really worked well. Those things. So I make another hand cream that I really like. That's fifty percent beeswax and fifty percent mineral oil, and it's the same way. You put this stuff on your hands, and you can just put your hands under water, and it beads right up, and beads off. So. Uh, yeah. I, I think I have some of that, like right here. Is that what this is? That's what that is. I oh, know that's Brent's bees. I have some of yours, and it's yeah. what's nice is it's really soft, mm-hmm. and it has really it's not greasy at all. So you I know, find these beeswax ones really are a nice product. Yes, I, I like them too. And what I just found, you know, what makes them really soft? That's funny. I used to I had some right here next to my desk. And just a hint of lanolin. Yeah. Lanolin is such a powerful moisturizer and it's greasy. You know, if you get a lot of it, then that, that's what makes it greasy. Yeah. But like I made, so say I made four of these four ounce tins and I put uh, uh, half a teaspoon of lanolin in there. And I, that gives it that nice soft feel. So uh, I made lip balm, I want to say three years ago for a club demo. And oh. it's just finally turning rancid. Yeah. Just finally, you know, the fats in it will eventually turn. Yeah. But three years. And the stuff that I have, um, you know, you put it on and you could you could somewhat taste an off taste. But it still works. And from a perspective of skin care and or whatever, that stuff works. With the beeswax, it yeah. works. It's amazing. And I had told you, don't let me forget before you leave today, I bought some zinc. Ah, so you can make um, sunscreen. Sunscreen. I have a formula for sunscreen, mm-hmm. and I'd like to. We're we're just behind you. We just cleaned <laughs> the, the the back workshop, mm-hmm. and are trying to get our affairs in order so that we can make lip balm and and hand cream and all that stuff. And I'm going to make some sunscreen this year. Yes. So back to your point about what's the shelf life on these things? The uh, lip balm has vitamin E in it. So yeah. it has a little bit longer shelf life. But I actually did an experiment is I took these lotion bars, which have no uh, vitamin E in them. They have no preservative in them. And I took some of the lip balms and I froze them for a year. And I just pulled them out uh, last week. And uh, freezing them, I think, really preserves them for a long time because it was like they were brand new. They have no moisture in them at all, right? From water yeah. standpoint, yeah, so it's not no, like they're gonna there's none degrade or break the, you, you the worry about structure the, down. You worry about the fats going rancid. Yeah, to your point, that's that's really what the uh, what the did you have them is. sealed in so they didn't pick up flavors of the freezer? I had them in a, a Ziploc bag, you yeah. know, a sealed bag. Actually, I didn't do this because I wanted to do an experiment. Actually, uh, I put them in the freezer because I wanted to submit them for EAS this year. Uh-huh. Yeah, and of I course, was, we didn't have that. Yeah, I was going to put together a little gift basket and, uh, you know, with 
some of my products of the hive and see, I was pretty proud of these lotion bars. I thought maybe I had a chance. So uh, that's why I, they were in there because <laughs> I wanted to keep them as long as I could until the show. But uh, so I think freezing helps, but I would assume that refrigerating also would retard that rancidness. I think um, it's been a while since we've caught up. Let's let's just start in on whatever. Um, Sounds good. Can you believe we're out in the bee yard today? I, I can't. It's 40-something degrees. December 6th. <laughs> but it felt nice. To say it was a sunny day. The wind finally calmed down. And it really was a beautiful December day. But, uh, you know, some people just can't stay out of the bee it, yard. It's been... Uh, we we've had uh, two inches of rain, two plus the oh. other less this week. Yeah, yes. And then we had more rain yesterday. How much did you get? Do you know? Yeah, I got about uh, two inches the first that first storm that you're talking about, and then yesterday I got a little over an inch, according to my uh, weather gauge. Yeah, and it's it's middle of the day. 30 something degrees right now. Yeah. 32, wow, I think. Look at that. Yep. Right, right at freezing. Um, I, I wanted to discuss something real quick with you about brood miners. It was the reason you came over today. We were looking at my brood miners online. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that the brood miners were with two, two observations. One, in the wooden hive. Uh, depending on the temperature of the day, high in the in the highest and low in the low, the broodminder looked like an ocean, up, down, yeah. up, down. But in the polyhive, it was a wave, flat, 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 mm -hmm. flat. And we talk about, you and I have been t discussing stability yeah. and how much of a difference but the other thing we noticed is your broodminders tend to register a little higher in temperature. Yeah, and less of uh, up and down, pretty flat compared to yours. Flat. Yeah, and and they and only... mine have a lower mine. What was it? Sixty. Yeah, one was sixty. One sixty was, degrees. One was Fifty-eight, something like that. So you and I have our broodminders shared. I can see yours. You can see mine. Yeah, that's. And you were telling me the other day you were looking at mine, wondering why the temps were so low. I was concerned. You know, I saw that up and down, and I saw the temperature. You know, at one point it was forty-eight, and I thought that boy, something's going on. But then I sat into one of these bee discussion groups, and someone else we were talking about monitoring hives. And they said that, yeah, depending on where you place that broodminder, you know, you might get a 40-degree reading or a 48-degree reading. As long as it's higher than the outside temperature, you know that the bees are generating heat and they're alive. So, so we went out to take a, take a look today, but everything looked good. And we did find out that you had one of those broodminders that was in the lower box. Right. Which you would, and, and we know that the cluster is in the upper box yeah. right now, so you would expect that to be lower. But it was always. I think it does have to do with where the broodminder is in proximity. Yeah. And yeah. I showed you a video this week. A, a listener, Etienne Tarda, wrote in. This guy, the work he's doing, um, we'll talk about this at, at some point on the yeah. show, but his work about monitoring and, and getting a sense of what's really going on in the hive. He had a video on YouTube, and the video showed 
how much the cluster moved around inside the hive during the summer. Mm -hmm. And he literally is plotting the heat map. And amazing how much they're moving around. Yeah. He's in the Yukon in Alaska. He's also using poly hives. But he has sensors down the sides of the hive and above the hive. It was crazy how many sensors he had in that yeah. hive. And I'll tell you, you know, there was a study done, I want to say Wisconsin or Minnesota, a long time ago. And that study was the most extensive temperature study inside a hive. Which one are you going after there? Uh, Cooper's Mark. Okay. I, I, let, I, let me, <laughs> I let like me. that little bourbon taste. Yeah. Ooh, that's too much. Oh, that'll warm me up. <laughs> it smells good. You get the oak oak barrel smell on it. Yeah, I really like it. That's not Bob's chair creak, and that's the cork bone <laughs> back at the bottom. Ting, ting. Ah, salute. Ooh. Boy, that's good. So, yeah, we will be discussing that, that study a little we will, bit but, more but, in depth. You know, maybe I'll get a chance and I'll put that video out there. It really ties in well with... But you and I watched the, the time lapse of that video yeah. and how the plot worked. Yes. That was fantastic what he did. Yeah. He um, He's really kind of selling me on this idea that the more stable you can keep that temperature in the hive, the better for the bees. It's less for them to heat. It's less for them to cool in the summer. And uh, it's it's not, not having these peaks, ups and downs. Steady state. I remember Dewey Karen telling us when we were studying for Master Beekeeper and having conversations with him about chalk brood and stress and clusters having to contract in the spring when the, when the cool snap came and they didn't have enough bees. Yeah. And they abandoned brood and yep. all, all yep. the setbacks. And that's also in his book. And okay. it just makes me think about all of that. That that was probably the first time I really started thinking about stability inside the hive. Right? Yeah. And how can you stabilize that so that the bees never experience that cold snap? Why should they have to experience it? Yeah. We could stay warm in our house. But it also comes back to... Uh, the commercial guys putting their hives in a, in a cold cellar for the winter <laughs> and maintaining the temperature. Yep. That's true. Is that not the same thing as stability? It's exactly the same <laughs> right? thing. And it's better in that it's at the optimal temperature, which they've determined to be the optimal. There was an article in Bee Culture recently about that. And I don't think it's Miller or a D whoever, one of the big guys, and they were talking about using potato cellars, something if I remember right. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating um, that that they were talking about stability of temperature. And part of it is they're trying to figure out what's the right temperature. Mm -hmm. How do you figure that out? Well, they seem to, the, the general consensus, and again, you know, this is one of those things where we, we repeat it as dogma just because yeah. we heard it, right? But I've always heard that 40 degrees... They use the uh, optimal amount of stores, not too much, not too little, right? So 40 degrees is the number. But where did that come from? You know? I don't know. So, so yeah, it's funny. You know, I think about that more and more. 
You know, we repeat this stuff all the time. And how do I know it's true? You know, some of it makes, makes sense and some of it's logical. But Well, you get someone like Katine who says, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. They're, right? And his, his paper that accompanies that work that I was talking about, mm -hmm. it expresses that back in the time that the USDA did that. I think it was the USDA. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the tools we have today. That's true. And you think about all these people who are doing hive monitoring, what they can learn, right? How much have we learned just from our rudimentary yeah. broodminder? Yeah. Have you noticed broodminder is ubiquitous? I mean, no, no knock against any of the others, but it's such an approachable company and entry level. But also, you, this guy's using broodminders. A teen had broodminder. You see the sensor? You had him cut off. Yeah. Did you see that picture? Yep. The thing is, they're affordable, right? Yeah. Number one. And number two, they're accurate, you know, within you know, whatever degree of freedom we, we need. You have to think about how <laughs> much impact someone like Rich Morris has had mm -hmm. on beekeeping over mm -hmm. the last five years because of what his belief was in, in getting this product to market. So do you know what his Huge amount of risk, right? When yeah. he did his... I was in a discussion group with Rich last week and we were talking about, you know, the brood minders and how you learn things that you never knew before. And he had Theo there and Theo was talking about their latest find is really interesting is that right before a hive swarms, the temperature spikes up. Yeah. And then they swarm and then, and he showed this repeatedly because he, he was following, you know, he had swarms that went out and then came back into the hive. And then they went out again, like almost false swarms, right? And he followed them and every time, right before they swarm, the temperature would rise. So what is that? Is that the, the bees are getting ready to fly? So they're flexing their flight muscles, generating heat? I don't know, but it was an observation that he got just because he had broodminders in there. One of the things that Dewey talked about in the book and that has been discussed is that when that occurs, they run around in the hive, buzzing each other and doing all that. Yeah, yeah. It's got to generate energy. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what they're picking up yeah, on. Yeah, and we've never seen Just it thinking before. thinking out loud. Because we never had had the uh, right. instruments to measure it. Yeah, so, you know, here, lift the <laughs> glass. <laughs> Rich Morris and friends, Theo, and good job, folks. Yes. Great, great work over there. To all our monitoring people, um, you know. It uncovers the mystery sometimes, and this is what it mm -hmm. takes into people like Katine Zardoff and hopefully I'm saying his name right, and others. Um, yeah. So we exchanged honey today. You brought me some. Thank yeah. you. And you gave me a jar of propolis yeah. and the instructions. Oh, yeah, propolis tincture. Yeah. So I, I tried this uh, last, This I made this probably last year. So it's probably about a year old now. And uh, I made as strong a, uh, a strong version as I could, which I think was 30%. So I have the formulas. I made 30%. And then what they said, if you want it to be even stronger than that or more concentrated than that, just leave it in a warm area for a couple of weeks. And what happens is the alcohol uh, evaporates and it concentrates the propolis. So that's what I did. So the stuff that I brought over is 
you know, it's pretty potent stuff as, as we saw. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I tried to, uh, did I tell you my, my experience in Malawi with this stuff? So I, when we were in Malawi this year, (laughs) we wanted to show them how to make candles, but I wanted, I figured, well, let me, let me show them how to make propolis tincture. Because, you know, in Malawi, they have no medicines, right? So even for a cut or something like that, you could use this stuff topically. So uh, so I told Frank over there, I said, Frank, I need some alcohol. You know, get, get me some alcohol. so I can... <laughs> No, I didn't hear this story. Oh, God, get me some alcohol so I can do this uh, demonstration and show people how to make propolis tincture. So I get in front of the, you know, the room the crowd i got my propolis i bring a helper up and i i pour the uh, alcohol in i put the propolis in and i start shaking it and nothing happens i mean not the slightest bit of propolis dissolved and i'm shaking i'm shaking it and it was clear to me that there was no alcohol in yeah. there it was pretty much water and uh so i didn't realize this right away but you, you know what i thought what i think happened you know that in Malawi, drinking, there's no such thing as social drinking. Right. The people that drink, drink to get drunk. And I think there's a stigma attached to going into a liquor store. And I think Frank didn't want to go into the liquor store and be seen as someone that purchases alcohol and is a drunk. So he gave me whatever he gave me. <laughs> it was probably mostly water. And I'm shaking it. And I'm shaking it. That's and I'm funny. shaking it. And none of it is dissolving. So, uh, so I, tr- but I tried to show them, they get the idea. Um, well, but... you'll hear us talk on the show about Celtic honey and Cooper's Mark because we went in the cabinet to, I have a bottle of Everclear and I wanted yeah. to show that to you. That's what you make it out of, right? Yes. That's what I use. The stuff is like <laughs> fireproof, <laughs> fire flame not fireproof the opposite it's it's like pure green alcohol right yeah, absolutely i mean it says right on the front flammable yeah careful <laughs> i never bought a bottle of liquor before that said flammable on it so uh yeah that's what got us started but back to the honey tasting um it's just amazing the range of flavors in honey so i brought one over today that was the lightest honey that i've ever had came out of the same yard that had the darkest honey that I ever had last year. Yeah. Right. Two completely different flavors, right? One very light and fruity and the other more earthy and and dark. So, uh, just was, it was a lot of fun tasting all those. Your, your one honey was very similar to my honey. Yeah. We tasted them and the profile was very similar. had a little bit of just a hint of mint. It was sweet, had a little lemony finish, a little acidic, Mm -hmm. uh, Really nice. Yeah, those were very really good honey. Very close. Good quality. Yep. Very close. And the other one that you gave me was a little flat. Yeah. Didn't taste bad. It just there was one nothing, note. Yeah. Right? There was nothing special about it where you went, ooh, that's different. Ooh, that that's that. It almost tastes like store bought honey. Yeah. Well, don't go that far. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to <laughs> what an insult. insult you. <laughs> No, no, no. no, but I mean, wait, <laughs> let me, let me dig myself out of the hole with a oh, shovel. Yeah, nice try. Um, they blend store-bought honey to always taste the same. Yes, That's what I mean. That's true. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, 
very neutral. It doesn't have a lot of sour. It doesn't have a lot of, it's just sweet, regular. And honestly, we both said it's good honey. Mm -hmm. It's just doesn't have a lot of character where a lot of times from the stuff we get from year to year, batch to batch, I, I was showing you, I have two boxes sitting out there that we have to extract still. Yeah. And so that'll be three different extractions we had this year. And every one of them, I'm positive, will taste differently. And that's, you know, that's something that I learned. I used to blend everything, but now I've got three distinct yards. I've yeah. got two club yards and then my own. And I kept them separate this year. First of all, I didn't want to be extracting, you know, all those boxes all at once. So I did them in batches and they're all different. You know, I told you about the moisture. It's like terroir. Yeah. Right? One of the moistures, the first one was 17. The next one I took was thick as molasses. It was 15.5%. And then the last one was just made at 18. That was your impression of the first one of mine that you tasted. Yeah. At th- a super low humidity. I thought so. Or uh, moisture level. I remember, uh, yeah. I remember Stan, our mentor Stan, telling me that he could tell by looking at honey how thick it was, you know, what the moisture content was. You know what's different? You know, obviously the taste is different, but there's different textures too. Like some of them, maybe it's funny because I have the tasting chart over yeah, here next that. to me, right? Yeah. And the, you have chemical taste, whether it's pungent or whatever. You have microbial. You have animal. You have earthy, spicy, fruity, herbaceous, woodsy, nutty, caramel, floral. These are all things that you use to describe. But the one that stands out to me is the texture. Mm. And to me, like the one that I gave you, the dark one today, it had a different texture, different mouthfeel. I was going to say mouthfeel. and But, you you know, I'll I'll read the, the, I have a chart here on the wall. Peanut butter, maple syrup, chalky, crumbly, velvety, tingly, oily, milky, taffy. Chewy, watery, pasty, gritty. I, I would almost border on taffy. I was going to say velvety too. Or, or velvety, the right? The mouthfeel was velvety. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange um, sensation that it, it, it has so much body. It's almost like, this sounds really weird, but when you push your tongue against the top of your mouth, it, it squeezes like it's spongy. Almost. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, it's hard to describe mouthfeel. Really is. But that honey is is almost silky. That's silky. that's the word I would mm-hmm. use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I thought about sitting in on one of these uh, webinars about honey tasting, and I missed it. I put it on my calendar, but I never did it. But I'd like to do that sometime. I think we've had enough of them, though. I mean, if you look at that chart, we. Yeah. Yeah. The spotter and lanternfly honey, when we went to Philadelphia Beekeepers Guild uh, meeting not too long ago, mm-hmm. I think the last one we went to. Actually, you went to the one I didn't go. So it was one before that. Yeah, okay. The one bright side of spotter and lanternfly was Karen Rockaseka talked about they wound the trees and it creates a nectar flow, false, a mock nectar flow. And there's spotted lantern fly honey now in 2020. So you said in your meeting, they talked about that. So they were, they were talking about this spotted lantern fly honey. 
and um, how it tasted, that it was earthy and smoky. And it seemed like there was a market for it. People liked it. That's the tree of paradise? Yes. Nectar? Yes. So tree of, in tree essence, of heaven, tree of heaven, isn't or it? tree of heaven, yeah, tree of heaven, honey is what it is basically. Then, right? Well, but here, no, well, here's the thing. So I was, it's curious that you said she said that, because I was always under the impression that it came from the uh, the honey honey dew. In other words, from the excrement from the spotted lanternfly, just the way aphids give off that sweet substance. Yeah, right. When you make forest honey, you make honeydew yeah, honey. Right. So. It's just, the excretion of the bug left on the plant, basically. Yeah, or it rain, rains down, right? Remember, yeah. you, you can sit under those trees that are loaded with spotted lanternflies, and you get full of this goo. Yeah. So, just so happens the next day, turn on the news, and they're talking about uh, spotted lanternfly honey, and how good it is, and they're going to taste it. So, they bring on a beekeeper, and he's the owner of the Philadelphia Bee... Philadelphia Bee, I don't know, organization or whatever. He's got a business. And he was saying, that's that's the first I had heard, it was it's not just from the honeydew, but to your point, it's from these piercings. When the spotted lanternfly pierces the tree, causes the tree to ooze, sap. Mm -hmm. So it's really a combination of honeydew as well as this sap that's coming out of whatever trees they are. Now, someone else said, yeah, well, if, if it's mostly tree of heaven, tree of heaven makes really shitty tasting, excuse me, <laughs> makes really <laughs> nasty tasting. Yeah, oh. You know, tree of heaven makes really uh, nasty tasting honey, honey that's not palatable. So, uh, but some people seem to like this stuff, this stuff. And then we were talking about, well, what effect does it have on the bees? Well, it's probably not good for the bees. Wait, one, one question. The honey we tasted today that came out of the round mountain yard. Yes. You don't think that's that, do you, by chance? It has a different taste. It does have a different taste. Uh, I'm not sure that there's that we're that infested yet. Yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, that there would be a significant amount of spotted lantern. How many? How many? Uh, how many spotted lantern fly do you see at your house? At my house? Yeah. None. None? No. Really? Yeah. Up at Deer Path, uh, not Deer Path, at Valley Crest, mm-hmm. I see the occasional one. Really? Yeah. I'm shocked. You're you're not that far from me. I'm telling you, our backyard. You're loaded. They're everywhere. They're wow. everywhere. We lay in a pool and you could watch them fly across. They don't fly. They they yeah, jump they, and well, but but they look like they fly from tree to tree. Mm-hmm. That's the way I describe it. And they're high. But we have a, a tree of heaven right behind the swimming pool. And when you look over, there's forty of them on the bush. Wow. We we always kept a spray bottle with soapy water next to the pool. And every day when we went out, we would spray them. Yeah. And they're hard to spray because as soon as you start to spray them, they, they jump. They're very fast, right? Yeah. But there's thousands of them in our yard. Thousands of them. So I'm not sure I have Tree of Heaven in my my at my house. I probably wouldn't recognize it if I did. But I know they have it at Valley Crest. 
because uh, it's it, Butch told me the thing about uh, Tree of Heaven that I know about is you know obviously we have them in our yard. Um, they they can be trees and they can be bushes. Most of the ones that we have is underbrush underneath because uh, we live okay. in a forested lot. Mm-hmm. They're small. They're they're head high or smaller, and they have a uh, long stalky leaf or stems that have different leaves on them and you look and every other leaf going down has them wow and what's funny is right behind the pool there's probably 20 different scrubby brushes um you know just native whatever and there's one tree of heaven and they're all on that they're not on the other ones they're on the right. tree of heaven now what we noticed is they're on the oaks. Mm-hmm. They're on the ash. Oh, that's what they need. Yeah, they're they're all the way through our woods. We find them, and where they're at, uh, we also see the woodpeckers pulling the bark off. I don't know if they're after them or something else. Mm. Um, but they're everywhere here, everywhere in the woods. So, but what I've been told is the way they expand their range is by hitchhiking. They don't fly into a new area or kind of... They land on a car or something yeah. and they ride it. So it could yeah. be that, you know, somehow they were transported to this area and maybe not to mine yet. Uh, well, our honey did not taste different this year. You tasted our honey. It's, yeah, it's no. pretty similar. Well, light, I had, floral. Yeah, I had uh, a beekeeper, Tim Dunn, called me. Yeah. And said he had a funny taste in his honey this year. And he was wondering if it was spotted lantern. That's fly. interesting. And. Uh, funny good? Ha ha funny? <laughs> it didn't sound like he like it was good. It's, funny like. It uh, sounded off. like. Yeah. Oh, it's. Uh, you know, it's not what well, I we're expected. a little peculiar, right? Because we come to love and like our honey has a little mintiness, a little flower. Yeah. Flowery. Yeah. A little lemony, which is perfect. And if it changed, I would be devastated. I'll tell you, if it. If my honey tasted smoky, I'd be pissed. Yeah. I don't think smoky is is uh, an attribute that I want in my honey. Do you? I, you know, I mean, we, we had the honey in Africa. Yeah, in Africa, and it, it was, tasted funny. And it was smoky. Yeah. Did you like it? No. Would you take it, prefer it over That ours? was ashtray smoky, though. <laughs> I think if you put the right kind of smoke in it. We were just looking at the Ash- smoker I found for yeah. twenty bucks Ashtray online. Ashtray smoky, that's a good right. one. It was ashtray smoky. It tasted like, well, you know what's funny is, what they burned in Africa was different than our pine needles. That's true right? too. Yeah, they were burning dung, yeah. and it tasted like ashtray, <laughs> <laughs> not ass, ashtray. <laughs> yeah, but you can imagine how that changes the whole local honey industry if, if in fact. We start having our honey tainted or tainted, including, you know, honeydew, basically. Yeah. Well, and and I don't think these things are going to go away anytime soon. No, they're not. Hopefully, whatever predator they introduce won't cause problems, but it'll solve this. But they're here. They're everywhere. The one good thing that they found is, uh, I don't know the name of the pesticide, but there's a systemic pesticide that they use. Yeah. For these, and they inject it into the trees. They did not find that in the honey, so at least it's pesticide-free, or at least free of that particular pesticide. So let's do a local hive report. We went out today, walked around the hives, 
in my yard. Primarily, I just wanted to move that one poly up to the pad. Right. Been waiting for it to be cold. It's finally cold. Isn't that funny? It's first first week of December. Yeah. It's finally cold. It finally feels like December. We were discussing. <clears throat> well, first off, we took the lid off of uh, hive number one. Unbelievable. Incredible. Cluster covered almost the entire hive. And I mean, all of it. It was huge up in the top box, too. I, I, did you get a chance to listen to Paul and Tracy? No, I did not. No. So one of the things Paul was talking about is in his hives, he has the plastic inner covers, like mm-hmm. what was on that hive. Yeah. You and I last year bought a couple inner covers that were Lexan. Are they Lexan? Yeah, they're Lexan. I have two of them. I happen to have one on that hive. So it was comfortable in taking the roof off mm-hmm. and we could see the entire cluster. And what I, the reason we opened that hive was uh, somebody else was here and we were showing them that that hive works from the top of the hive. Yeah. They never use the bottom entrance. They're always in that top box. Yep. This is the all medium hive on pad number one. You know, the other observation on that hive with that uh, cover, no condensation. No condensation. So Paul was talking about condensation in his hives, and I'm like, well, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I was yelling at him. You know, sometimes you yell at your phone like, Paul, (laughs) you have plastic. If it was wood, it would absorb the condensation. So switch those out in the winter. I was wondering if when we open it, but I think what happens there is that cluster is so big. It was as big as a basketball. It was yeah, amazing. Yeah. I was so proud of that. <laughs> but, but you <laughs> know, say. yeah, but you have an upper entrance also. So, yes. And you have your right. covers turned with the entrance down. Right. And the entrance is down on that one for that reason, because they use that entrance. Otherwise, they usually turn them up. Right. So it's got increased ventilation, which is good. Yeah. There's a big enough cluster to keep that air moving. Well, and the heat is right up on the it's right plastic. There. Yeah. So. Oh, and your, your outer cover, telescoping cover is insulated, too. Insulated, yes. Right. Right, so right that, over top of that's it. That's important, yeah. I think. Yeah, the combination. But anyway, back that back leads to... me to the point where I was telling you that the weather last week was so warm. I went out there. I think it was in the sixties. Mm-hmm. They were still foraging and bringing in pollen. They're building right. brood, and talk about you know we, you and I before we came on air here um, talked about so many different topics. Oxalic acid. They're still building brood. This is this is the first week where it's been. High of 45, 50 mm-hmm. at best, but not yeah. 45. And the lows are down in the 30s. They're in the freezing. So now yeah. they're on the cluster, yeah. for real. Yeah. And now, and that doesn't mean they're not brooding, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to assume in the middle of that cluster, they could potentially still be rearing some brood to finish. Yep. But I think when it gets that consistent, they stop rearing brood in earnest. Yeah. That's when you could do your oxalic acid treatment. Right. So it's really. If you're going to do one in the winter. So it's really too early now. Yeah. But we looked at all our hives, uh, all my hives, just kind of walked around the outside and looked at them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took the lid off of the top bar. Yeah. And that was was interesting, too, because believe it or not, that little bit of disturbance, and we hardly disturbed them at yeah. all. Next thing we know, there were bees down at the entrance, and they were checking it out, what was going on. Now, so. what I'll tell you is last week when I did that, because I was taking the feeders off, 
the entire cluster was up underneath the bottom board on the left side of the hive. And when I looked through that hole, a solid bees. Today, what did we say? Nothing. Blank bars. <laughs> yeah, nothing. So they're down in the in the comb mm-hmm. somehow. Yep. And we wonder, well, how big is the cluster? Well, we know how big the cluster is because if they could afford to come cover the entrance, yeah, they're they're big that, enough. That's all the way down to that's the a bottom, sign, right? Much. It is because when they're really small, nothing you could bang, boom, boom, yeah. boom on the hive. They don't cover the entrance. Yeah. They can't afford to leave. That's right. They can't. So afford. if they come, my experience is if they come to the entrance, they're good. Yeah. Well, like I told you before, and today just kind of confirmed that your hives are most of them, not all of them, but most of them are really strong, as strong as as they've been in years. I think they look that, pretty that, good. That three deep you show, showed me today, that was a huge cluster. Yeah. A huge cluster. So those... the, the big question is, and you know, look, we, we talked about this and I, I'm full, full disclosure. <clears throat> I put my Apivar in and I wanted to go pull my Apivar. I didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to wait till spring. I'm not opening them now. It got, I lost the chance for it to be cold. I had that day where I wanted to go do it Yeah. and I didn't get to it. So it's not a mortal sin that you didn't take it out of there, but. Well, it's pretty, pretty much a sin, but. Yeah, but not a. But you know what? We we, this is the discussion we had. (laughs) There's so many beekeepers who do this same thing at the end of the year, and they just pull their stuff out in the spring when they clean up. As long as you use another treatment, that's the key. The the people from who makes Apivar, Vito. Yeah, they're probably crying right now. (laughs) This discussion. Yeah. 56 days, get it out, right? And I believe that. So do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, I got mine out this year, like I told you, but uh, some of my mentees, it's still in there. I get to the point where, you know, the biggest problem was the one day that I had the opportunity, it rained. (laughs) I couldn't get out there. And then it turned cold the next day. And I'm not going to break my propolis seals. Yeah. If one thing has been consistent over the years on this podcast, I always talk about that. I'm not breaking my propolis seals. Yeah. I'm See, just not doing it. And that's the advantage I have. Being home every day, Yeah, I can look at the week and say, well, I'm actually oh, home every day now. But... <laughs> Thursday is going to be the nice warm day. And that's what I did. It was a warm day. I went up and I got it done, but. Yeah, you're sitting here in my man cave and you see right in front of you is my work computer and all yeah. my stuff is up. And, you know, this is the thing. If I open my calendar, you'd see meetings from, you know, my my offshore team to my onshore team. To well, lately, straight every, through. every time you call me during the day, you're on a call anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking to me on one phone and you're on a call on the other one. Uh, excuse me a minute. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So I wanted to talk to you. We so, we had go the, back. What, so what was the? I don't remember. Tracy and uh, Tracy Paul, and Paul. Paul. What was what was he talking about that you he took was, issue with? He was saying that he had plastic covers. Oh. And that they had condensation, and he mm-hmm. was having water problems. And the answer is switch the plastic covers out and put wood in there. I think more important is in, the, the insulation. The insulation insulate, on the insulate, top. Yeah, insulate the telescoping cover, and I think that, that goes away. So I have a whole feature for the next episode to discuss my theories about that. And wood, re- wood retains heat, and 
you know, ultimately what you want to do is keep the top of the hive to the point where the moist air that's warm and heated doesn't find cold, mm -hmm. super cold. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, plastic is not going to let any of that moist air out either right. and not absorb it. So, so to you, Paul, uh, in the wintertime, put your wooden covers back on. It might help your situation. But that, that also argues, you know, that I insulate my hives. So I insulate them on the three sides and the top and sometimes on the bottom. Um, but that would argue about to insulate only the top so that it wouldn't condense on the top, but leave the sides open so they would get cold so it would condense on the sides. Right. Because they need moisture anyway in the winter. So, you know, you wonder, if you know, you don't know what the right thing is to do, but... It would make sense. I have to believe, and I'm giving away a little sum of what I talked about. And we were talking, um, Sue Serkey, somebody everybody will hear about in the future, uh, um, was here today. She's my son's fiance's mother, and she's going to become a beekeeper. And we, we had her out in the bee yard today, walking her through. And I was telling her that. The moisture inside the hive in the winter is sometimes collected, even though it's very dry, right? Humidity mm -hmm. levels, the wood absorbs it, the comb absorbs it. It gets absorbed into the honey, even though it's covered with wax a little bit. Mm -hmm. All that stuff is bone dry. And when it's bone dry, it's going to absorb any of the moisture that the bees give off. So to that point, Kevin, we've had broodbinders long enough that if you look at your broodminders, summer and winter, humidity is almost the same in the summer and the winter. Yeah. It doesn't really change all that much. So the only difference is that you've got that contrast between the outer cold and the nice, warm, moist air inside. Yeah. And and the thing is, when it's in the summertime and the humidity is up, there's no need for that stuff because it's already saturated. Mm -hmm. And you know who turned me on to that was Wyatt Mangum. He talked about that in his top bar study. How much I never thought about that substrate uh, absorbs some moisture, but he was discussing it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. what's going on in your yard? So, what do you got going on? Well, you know, I finally activated my broodminders. I didn't have them in for the summer, but I wanted to put them in for the winter because I like to see if they're alive by the temperature. So I put them in. And uh, so far, I, I only have um, three lang, oh, excuse me, four Langstroths in my home yard and two top bars and my five nukes. That's what I, what's in my yard right now. Mm -hmm. But... Um, so, so far they look good. You know, it's early. Um, I'm concerned about the nukes because this is the first year that I'm trying to overwinter five single story nukes. You didn't do a double story nuke condo this year. I, I was not. at your house when you were putting yeah. them together. So what, ha what happened to me is I didn't make up my nukes until late and they just never got to that point. As a matter of fact, there were so many um, small hive beetles in there that I was reluctant to add a second box because I thought they, there weren't enough bees in the, in the lower box to protect all that comb. So anyway, I'm down to five. 
Well, uh, why do you think he had small high beetle problems? I didn't see him in my yard. I look, I saw him. There was a dozen, twenty, two dozen. Yeah. Which is not great, but it's not awful. It's not you know people laugh at us when we yeah. talk about how many oh, yeah. high beetles we have, right? Mm-hmm. But you actually had a hive slime this year. So I did actually. That was my uh, one of my top bars. And I thought it was pretty strong at the time. Um, all of my nukes this year were just loaded with them. And I think, you know, go back and it's, it's, blame the beekeeper. I think I when I made them up, they were too weak. They weren't strong enough. Yeah. And uh, and it allowed the small hive beetles to come in and, and uh, you know, make. Did you see any signs of small hive beetles propagating? Like the, the... No. What I saw, nope, nope. What I saw was every time I opened the uh, the hives up, they were up above the frames and on the uh, inner cover. So the bees were, had them corralled, Mm -hmm. right? So they weren't actually, you know, laying in the honey and sliming the honey, but they were there. So I don't know why. All I know is it's a real pain in the butt. You know, who, who needs... Small hive beetles. I got enough trouble. I noticed when we were in your hives, um, I saw the hive beetles in there. Yeah. In the summer. They didn't look terrible, but they were they were there. Yep. More in the late summer. Am I right? Yes. Yes, it was late summer. Um, so anyway, my hive's going into winter. I have a three deep that's really strong, and it should be fine. I have my stenciled hive, which is uh, the hive that... Uh, one of my mentees, Diana, helped me stencil, so it's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, you know. It is nice. It is nice. So anyway, that one I'm really hopeful for because uh, I have that. I have a scale on that one, Broodminder scale. I have a lot of appreciation. You know, you see people on Instagram or whatever, and they post their hives, and they're decorated really nice. Yeah. And, you know, men. Men tend to be funny beekeepers. They paint their hives white or gray or whatever. <laughs> but. Well, you know how, so anyway, you know how long it took to stencil those two deep boxes? Yeah. It took us probably five hours to, to get them done. But I but I have an artistic bent, so you would yeah. think that I would. You should try it. Well, I at least painted my hive uh, handles a different color on my hives. That was a nice face. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we digress. Back to um, this hive. So I have it on a broodminder scale. It weighs 157 pounds. Yeah. Two deeps. That hive we looked at today weighs 133. Mm-hmm. Three mediums. So you, know, you lift this thing. I think this thing has a really good chance of making it through the winter. Um, so I'm happy about that. My top bars seem to, you know, I can't remember. The last top bar I lost was my the little one. But my full size, average size Top you don't bars. have the little one in service right now, right? It's not in, yeah, it's not in service. The yeah. wax moths got to it and I had to get rid of all that comb. Um, but the top bar is over winter. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, because again, think about where the heat, the heat dynamics of a top bar hive, right? Where's yeah. the heat? It's all up there by the top. Right up bars. where the honey, honey dome is and across allow, all the top of the them frames. To move what they have to move yeah. and get the honey that they need. So I think that's an advantage. So I'm not really worried about them. I'm worried about the nukes. Now, the other hives, I have two other yards. And they're both the, the ones that I maintain for the club. Valley Crest Farm. Mm-hmm. And those are all, no, let's say three up there. Two out of the three are strong. 
They're all four four mediums. Um, but one of them you're going all them, mediums with the club hops, yeah, right? That's yeah. that's what they were talking about in the exec meeting. I'll tell you what, when we talked about this, if I had to do it all over again, that's what you would do. Uh, and really, I'm getting, I'm getting too old to lift those full deep boxes. So anyway, so yeah, we went to all mediums there, and they filled the fourth box. So they're there's got a lot of stores, and they're a good population in there. So I'm feeling good about them. Um, I've got four other hives up there that are double deeps and, uh, same thing. I think they're going to be fine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's ironic. The club hives and, and all the people that I mentor, all of their hives are better than mine. Than your home. <laughs> they're stronger than my hives. Yeah, it's funny because your yarn goes through like mine, ebb and flow. Don't you think some some yeah. years you you're like oh my I can't believe how strong your yard is, yeah. and other years you're like uh, a little nervous. Yeah, well you, you, know? you know that I guess it was a couple of years ago, two or three years ago now. I had pretty heavy winter losses, you know, over seventy five percent. Yeah, and uh, then probably that next year was when you came over and you go, oh this is Bob's BM Emporium. Yeah, <laughs> I had bees everywhere, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're right, it does ebb and flow. Um, Although, and again, well, I've I, talked about it on the show is that I know you're doing a calling of comb this year. Yes. So, yeah. And we've discussed that. Uh, I've already. So I think you're going to have a great 2021. I've already thrown out a hundred frames. Just threw them out rather than try to, you know, replace yeah. the, uh, the comb. Just that's how old they were. I have comb that was given to the club that probably is close to 30 years old. Some of it. So, uh. Now you you finally converted me on that. Talk about the that cutout that we put. I brought you a poly new yeah. six frame, yeah, single layer. Yep. So this this was interesting. What, what I, odds do you think you you'll put on that coming through? Twenty percent. Yeah. Twenty percent. Thirty percent. Fifteen would be generous. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so describe that thing and let's. Yeah. So let's, here's what happened. I uh, I got a call in September. Um, about a swarm. So uh, I went over and it was in an industrial park and it was under the loading dock and uh, it wasn't a swarm. In fact, it was a colony. It had been colonized there. There was about, I don't know, maybe six or seven combs that I could see on down on the ground. So um, I decided to try my first forced abscond. And, Second. Uh, Second, that's <laughs> so, you have that one video that has all the views that never stops yeah. s sending comments. <laughs> so, anyway, I did this forced abscond, and you know, at the 11th hour after smoking and smoking and smoking these bees out of here, um, the queen came out and I caught her. So I got the queen, I cut all the comb out, I rubber banded it. Did you have a video? How did you know you got her? I, I saw her. I picked her out. You, know, yeah. I'm, I'm standing, you literally watched her walk out? I'm literally, I'm literally standing. Tell me through this. I'm literally laying on the ground and watching the bees as they're coming Describe, out. I, I, you, you told me this, but I don't think I understood. It was underneath the loading dock. Yeah, I have videos off to show you later. It was a colony built on literally combs out in the open air right they weren't in a in a container yeah they were under a, a slab let's put it that way and so how did you isolate them and then 
So when I first started doing so, did you enclose them in some way? No. So they were they were right up and up to the front where I could see them. So I cut that comb out. I put it rubber banded it in. Cut the second comb out. Vacuumed the bees off each comb as I was yeah. going. And I reached back about you know arm's length. I could get under there. And uh, I was there was maybe one comb that I couldn't get to, but that was it. I had them all. So uh, I took a piece of PVC pipe, uh, about you know one and a half, two inch, and it was perfect. I set it, and it went all the way to the back of where that last comb was. And I took my smoker and I smoked through this pipe. And I, I, drove, I so drove, you just literally like put the smoker end in, in the pipe I, and yeah, I drove this by the. Uh, where was I? I was working that day. I wanted to come with you. Yeah. I gotta get a, where did I put my picture of it? But anyway. I remember when you did this. That's what it looked like when yeah. I started. Holy right? cow, it's huge. Yeah, I thought it was pretty big. So um, so this was the, the first time I brought a nuke box over. And I rubber banded them into the nuke, nuke box. And then when I went back the next day, there was a ton of bees still in there. So I said, you know, I, I didn't get nearly all of them. So I brought back a deep box and put the five frames from the nuke in it and then started smoking and smoking them out. I can't believe it doesn't. I don't have that one with me. But anyway, so I, I put the smoke in all the way at the back. Right. So that drove them to the front toward me, yeah. to the opening. And so literally I, I put a white uh, tarp down and I put the box there. And I just kept smoking, and it took hours. It took two, three, it, four. It sounds like, and, and by the pictures, the way to describe this to everybody, it was a crawl space, so to speak. Yes, yeah, that's right? where they were. And you forced them from the crawl space out through the opening in the front. Yep. How big was the opening, the natural opening? Uh, it was about a, uh, eight inches to a foot on one side, yeah. and then it tapered up to where maybe it was just a few inches on the other side. It was tight, you know. So you literally watched the queen walk out of it. <laughs> so, How cool is that? So I was smoking for, you know, an hour, two hours. And I was pleased because they were walking out, literally walking out and going into the box that I had there with the drawn comb in it. So I figured, well, I'm going to keep smoking until, you know, maybe I get lucky. And uh, no kidding, it was at least four hours. Might have been five hours. Um, all of a sudden, I'm watching and I'm watching. And I see what I think is the queen. And I quick run down and she scoots around the corner. Yeah. And there she was. Of course, I had my clip ready. I clip, I put her in there. And of course, I had to tell somebody. <laughs> so I get on my cell phone. I call the guy who called me to do this. He's in a building, you know, right up the road. He said, oh, come down. I want to see. <laughs> so I had to take, take pictures of him showing him. I got that's, the queen. I got the funny. queen. So, of course, I put the queen in there. So that the rest of the stragglers would go in and, and I got it. So anyway, so let's go back. So I have them now in this deep box, 10 frames, um, tied in comb. So, so all the frames aren't full. Um, no brood at this point, because whatever brood was there died. So, it, you know, if there was cat brood there, it didn't make it. So I started feeding them because I knew they needed food. So they built up. But anyway, when we, when I was put the, them in, Was the 10 frame full? No, no. No, they, right? It looked like you had about seven or I was gonna say, at best, six or seven I'd frames. Say, I'd total. say six probably at best. So uh, Not anyway, fully built out. Now, you gave me this uh, polyhive. So by the time I transferred them into the polyhive, 
if there were three frames of bees, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. Right? You saw them. Well, the other thing is we put three frames of bees in comb that was not contiguous, hanging by rubber bands. It probably <laughs> occupied one-third to two-thirds of the actual yep. comb. Now, yep. I said to you, let's put some real comb in next to them. And we did. Maybe they would migrate. Do they have food? They have some. I actually, I wanted to go in this weekend yeah. and put some fondant in. What I'm going to do is put fondant in a frame right next to them. Um, but I hope I'm not too late because it's been cold. It's been cold. And, you know, that this is a small cluster. This is a... They're in that poly, though. I know, but if... <laughs> If, if this thing It'll is, generate enough heat to... I don't know. If it's softball size, that's being generous. Yeah. It's, it's not very big. So it'll be a true test. Will you be able to do any um, pollen? In uh, case they want to brood up at all? Yeah, I don't know. But I don't have any right now, but... I have that fresh pollen in the fridge. I could do it. Before you leave today, let me give you some. Okay. You could just rub it in the frame. You know, I'll, rub I'll it in the you, comb. If, if that... If that Conley makes it through the winter, then I'm on board. You're going to sell all your wood stuff. <laughs> with your poly hives. If that colony makes it through the winter, yep. I'm going to sell all your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so one, one more thing to talk about, by the way, that that sound you hear is... Uh, <laughs> That's Bob reaching over to pour himself another <laughs> Yeah, we're, another honey. I, you know, we don't do this very often, but every once in a while. So I have in front of me Cooper's Mark Honey Flavored Bourbon Whiskey, Golden Colony Honey, and you're drinking our favorite Celtic Honey, Irish Honey Liqueur, Celtic Honey, Celtic, I'm Celtic, sorry, yes. Celtic, imported. This is the smooth one. I, I wanted you to, to have a taste of this Cooper's Mark and compare it because we've had this Celtic honey before. And, uh, you know, it's a cold winter day. One of our and... best podcasts is <laughs> this Celtic honey in the summer. That one we, oh, yeah, that was a gem. <laughs> uh, anyway. But this, this Cooper's Mark is pretty good. I, you know, I like comparing them. I've also had the Jack Daniels one, which is pretty good. I like the fact that it's got more of a bourbony taste than the uh, than the Celtic. Than the Celtic. Yeah. Yeah, you get that oak barrel kind of back on it. <sighs> yeah. Um, so anyway, back to my, Bob's local hire report. Yeah. So I have the two other yards that I maintain for the bees. But this year, I have other people's hives in there. Because one, I got a call from someone that was moving, needed a place to put his hives like he was moving the next day. Did you ever figure out why that hive box was sitting in the middle of the field? Yeah, he put it there. I it was, yeah. Oh, talk about coincidence. So, you know, you know, I don't go up to Valley Crest every week, you know, let alone every day. So uh, I finally, I went up again. It was a nice day. So let, let me go up and do my thing. I pull up there and I'm down in the second yard and all of a sudden I see this car. And I drive back, and, you know, it was Peter. Yeah. So Peter was there. We just happened to cross paths. And I said to him, I assume those are yours, aren't you? And he said, yes. And what we're talking about is we went out in the middle of this field. We have two. Um, yeah, and you and I were out there last weekend. We went to hang signs on the electric fence right. to say, beware electric fence. So we have two and, yards. And there was a box sitting in the middle of the field. <laughs> yeah. It was four or five, you know, stacked up and it was clear that they were honey. 
and then they were put there to be robbed out. And uh, we couldn't figure out who put them there. Um, I figured it had to be Peter, and it was. So he put them up there, and uh, he said, I hope you don't mind. I said, was that sugar water, honey, like we speculated? Did you ask yeah, him? I didn't ask him, you know, but I, we tasted it. <laughs> we couldn't help ourselves. We stuck our finger in it to see what we thought. Yeah, it it tastes sugar, like sugar water, honey. Sugar water, honey. Funny, honey. Yeah, but anyway, so I'm hosting both of those yards. I'm hosting other people's hives because Peter was moving. He needed I'm a I'm kind of hoping my hives take off this year, and I'll bring you a couple more to put in there. And, okay. you know, we're working with Grow a Row yeah. there, and they are willing to increase those apiaries a little bit. They yeah. Want. Yep. And then I have, uh, and I told you this, I have the eight-frame mediums. Yeah. So... I have uh, someone that I mentor, and, and she did it right. She started with eight-frame mediums. And I'll tell you what, that's the way to go. Well, you're into your six-frame polys. I, but... I think if there's such a thing that is on par, it's an eight-frame medium yeah. to the six-frame poly. It's close but, to optimal. But this is the challenge. And, and I said this either on the last podcast or the one I'm prepping. The one knock I don't like about the medium is its frame, small, comb, frame, bottom, frame, small, mm -hmm. comb, frame, bottom, frame. The the breakup of that is not natural. Yes. I would like to see them have a longer face. And a deep frame in a six-frame poly is closer to that. Yeah. I thought you were going to say you, <laughs> you wanted an eight-frame uh, uh, lay-ins hive. <laughs> yeah. I would, actually. I think two eight-frame lay-ins hives would be perfect. Mm -hmm. Or six-frame lay-ins hives. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, all those hives, you know, I treated them in both of those yards. They're all doing well. They're doing better than my bees. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's where I am. I, I don't. Think sometimes I'm... you're the bug and sometimes you're the windshield, right? That's just <laughs> the way beekeeping is on, on any given year. Um, yeah. And, you know, I joked with you this afternoon as we were walking out of the bee yard, like, it's only December. <laughs> yeah. There's still there's still a, a chance for peril. So I wanted to talk one more topic with you. Um, I, I introduced this idea to you. I ran it past you before I put it out about the Supreme Hive. Mm -hmm. yep. And I've received a lot of positive feedback. People really connected with that idea. One of them came from Dave from Owens Farm. He sent me a message about, it's a study, I believe, in Germany, if I have it right. We heard about it at EAS. I was trying to shake the cobwebs from you. Yeah. And I'm trying to shake the cobwebs from me, too. I, I'm pretty sure it was Jennifer Berry, but it could have been Kirsten Trainer that talked about it. The premise of this is something, a uh, different way to skin a cat. In the summertime, when you get to Supreme Hive territory, you stop the operation. Mm -hmm. And the way they, they do it is leading up, you're doing drone culling. And then in the summertime, you perform a brood break, but in a special way. You take all the brood away from the hive, all open and cap brood except for one frame. I, I'm just going to summarize this because I think I'm going to report it at, at some point mm -hmm. and give it its just due. But um, in essence, it's a different 
take, what was your initial impression of this design where you're taking all the brood out of the hive except for one frame, you let any Varroa that's in the hive go to that one frame, and then you collect that frame out and take it out, and you run oxalic acid treatments to kill any mites. And then I suppose, and I'll just suppose for now, that you put it all back together. Yeah. Uh, interesting idea. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting idea when we heard it the first time. But what was, uh, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll, I'll spoon feed you. What was your feedback on this? <laughs> It was too much work. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah. So let, but let's go back. How do we get on this? We got on this because we were talking about how the fact that treatment-free beekeepers, many of them, you know, they don't talk about the fact that they do use ma- other management techniques to help them. They don't just let the bees die and then breed from the survivors. So many of them do brood breaks. Yeah. So that's what got us started on this. Well, well they do breaks. splits, they do queen rearing, they do all those things that don't necessarily mean they're literally doing brood breaks, but right. it results in some derivative of right. a brood break, right? That's the observation that we've had. Right. When we... And it all comes down to is you're preventing that exponential growth of the mites at a time that the bee growth is going down, yeah. right? So you have to prevent that. That's what it is. Because you're going to have mites in, in hive. Even if you treat your hives, you're going to have mites in some level of mites. The point is keep it down at a level that the bees can deal with and that the viruses are, are kept in check. So this, you know, this makes sense. If I could sum up with what they're doing, they're yeah. basically sequestering all the mites one key thing to this is they say when you're at the point where you have, I'll make up a term, peak mite population, something that's going to impact the hive. Mm-hmm. You're basically collecting all the mites and you're isolating them off into a separate hive. And then you wait for all the brood to emerge. And then when they're broodless, you treat them. And then if they come out the other side, they're clean. Yep. You can then blend them back into your operation. Yeah. And in the meantime, your origin hive has the queen. She's still laying eggs and doing her thing. And that hive can continue operation. And once you inoculate that other hive, you can bring it back in. And this, this also ties back. I was reminding you of the, it was a December meeting, I think. January or December meeting of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association where the guy had that special contraption. Yeah. Because one of the things that, that was talked about in that EAS talk was you need to sequester the queen for a good period of time. Yeah. Can you imagine keeping her in a little box for three weeks? Right. And she's not spreading her queen pheromone and there's other things that could potentially happen because of the fact that she's just not operational. Mm -hmm. She's not laying a lot. Right. So what that guy had was he had some sort of contraption that basically encased a single frame in a a cage, uh, a queen excluder cage. And she could operate on one frame. And if she operated on that frame enough, it would spread enough of her pheromone and she would have enough brood pheromone and other things going on that the hive still felt like it was working. It was not the same because she was isolated to one frame. But it was just enough to get through that wee period of time yeah. while this manipulation was going on. Well, and at the end of the day, that comb was disposable, right? So you yeah. had now any potentially any mites that were in cells were in that frame. 
so you can isolate it and take that one out. Um, well, and it, as you know, there was notes of it gives you the opportunity to call comb, which we've talked about yeah, already. Yeah. It gives you the opportunity to do drone boot uh, culling. It gives the opportunity for you to, to use uh, screen bottom boards and other integrated mm-hmm. pest management. And then number one payoff is no miticides. You're using organic mm-hmm. oxalic acid both in the middle of the summer and you you would do a subsequent when they do November, December brood up like right now. Yep. That was the point we were trying to talk about before. I saw bees bringing in pollen mm-hmm. in that warm period last week, which means I can't do oxalic yet. Yep. I need to get a long enough period where they're on the cluster that any of the brood that they've been building over the last couple of weeks, that's the point we were trying to come back to. But where I also was going with that is if you treat with oxalic acid when there is brood, what's the effect of the oxalic acid on the brood? There's been some studies that show that it negatively affects the brood. There was something in uh, bee culture recently right? so you that were, I read that said exactly right? that. So it's, you eliminate, it's a no-go. So you're eliminating that. You know, People that say, okay, use oxalic acid. I use it every four or five days, five times, whatever. Whatever their thing is, yeah. you're, treating, you're, you're exposing your brood. To oxalic acid and if there are negative consequences then uh you know you're, you're affecting that brood well in this case you're not though right because that's you're letting all the brood that, come that's out that's exactly the point yeah that's a that's an advantage over what we do now so if i remember i i, I swear but i could be completely wrong that it was jennifer barry talking about this now jennifer was talking about in eas in the first session, the Randy Oliver chop towel thing. Yes, chop towels. Yep. Where he said it worked, <laughs> she said it didn't. And then she went and repeated the thing because she thought, well, maybe I did something wrong. And it didn't work the second time either. And so they were at a divide. She said it doesn't work. He said it is working. Mm-hmm. What do you know about that? Have you ever used this chop towel thing? No. Nope. I just knew that they're Randy's, very popular with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Randy says it works. So, you know, most people believe whatever Randy says. So I'm sure there's people out there that are using it. Yeah. Well, Kevin at BKCorner.org. <laughs> Write me in if you're using it. I'm just curious as to how you made out with it. So I guess where we ended this discussion was, well, I like Formic Pro. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Forget we like o- Formic Pro. <laughs> Forget this oxalic acid. Well, I think oxalic, I was showing you today my mite vaporizer, mm-hmm. the exterminator. <laughs> Exterminates without prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great phrase. I'm excited to use that thing. I'm also nervous to use that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the thing, right? You saw how big that colony is. Yeah. Does it really need to be mite proof now? Yeah. I don't know. I could be. This is the thing. You can't look at the colony and go, they're, they're infested with mites and they're going to make it to February. Yeah. Although, somebody wrote me in and said, don't be a dummy. Yeah. Why would you wait? If there are mites in there, get them now. Yeah. Why would you wait and let the colony be sick? And I, I read that and said, oh, duh. Well, <laughs> that makes sense. The question is, 
if you oxalic acid vaporize your bees here in December, do you risk any harm? At this time, because of the weather, yes, because there potentially is brood in there. Right. But but let's say I wait till Christmas okay. or so you wait till later? No. What do you think? Probably not. No. Nope. Get a warm day and, and have at it. Right. You just want to make sure that they break cluster so you can get all of them. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't yeah. be so conservative about this, right? Well, let me ask another question. So we went in that hive today, and it had the poly, um, what do you, plexi, plexi, plexiglass top, and we looked in. Right. If there were a lot of mites, or mites, small hive beetles in there, you think we would have seen some? Here's what I know. When I opened that hive two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a month ago, the funny thing about it is the, the small hive beetles were on top of the plastic. <laughs> uh-huh. They had damn good bees keeping them out. Yeah. Yeah, no. And only when I took the lid off did they have the opportunity to get in. And, of course, I ran around with my hive tool and smashed them all. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about the mites. It's getting to the point where, you know, it used to be one treatment a year. Then it was two treatments a year. Then it was three. Now it's like people that do four or more. And as we discussed, it's expensive. Yeah. That's why I think people are driven to oxalic acid. Number one is it's organic, but number two is it's cheap. It's pennies. If you have a lot of hives and you have to treat them three or four times a year, it runs into some money. That comes all right off the I start top. thinking about, um, you know, as I listen around <clears throat> and also what I know, the mites vector the viruses, and it makes the individual bee sick. The bees, however, are vectoring the viruses too, because if they get to form the wing virus, they can pass it amongst each other. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a varroa mite. Right. It comes from bee-to-bee contact. Now, I'll ask you this. Have you ever heard this? Recently, I read something. I don't remember where I came across this, that the actual pathogens can store in a comb and in the honey. I did, did you know that? I, I, never thought, I never thought that was true, but I read it also recently somewhere. That Maybe it was a bee culture article there was, or, there on, was somewhere. or in a Facebook post. But what they said was your risk of dead outs was more than you think because the possibility of deformed wing virus yeah. is in the comb. That surprised me. In a or way. maybe not DWV particular. Let me not screw that up. Something, pathogens in the comb. Yeah. And that this is all the more reason for Kelly Kalhanik had talked about. Sorry if I mispronounced your name wrong, Kelly. Removing dead outs from your yard yeah. because it was harbinger of bad things. So I'm just reflecting on this. So, so from what I know about viruses, they can't live outside of a cell or outside of an organism, right? Yeah. So how do they exist in I a don't home, know. right? They have to be in a bee, I would think, to be able to exist. So it's kind of hard to believe that they would be in the yeah, wax. Yeah, but what if, what if, how do they transfer then to bumblebees? They get left on a plant and, the, yeah. and they come in contact with it. So there has to be certain shelf life in contact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But it was the first I heard that because I always was always told, no, the viruses die with the mites, right? 
or die with the bees. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is uh, an area of study. All right, so Bob, we've been talking for an hour, 20 minutes, whatever. I think it's probably about time to wrap <laughs> this up. Time? I don't know. I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little more here. Well, we, we could talk off off uh, mic, but uh, yeah, that means you need to not be a stranger. Come back more often. This is fun. I like this. So we should do this more often. Yeah. You know, maybe it's just because I'm. I've been cooped up with COVID now. I appreciate just getting out of yeah. the house. It's the first you, time I drove my you, car in a week. You've been like a recluse. I've talked about that on the podcast. Like you actually physically think about like I need to step on the gas and yeah. stuff. Because you haven't driven a car, right? Well, and, and you know, I, I have a fairly new car. I just got it. And I'm just learning how to drive it. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yep, so I won't well, be a stranger. season will be uh, right around the corner. Yeah, let's do this more often. What are you doing this winter? You got any projects? Um, no, not really. Nothing related to beekeeping. Yeah, just making my Christmas gifts. It's amazing how much people really uh, appreciate that. They like the fact that you've invested time yeah. into making this stuff. You know, it's not the, the monetary value. It's not how good the product is. It's just the fact that, hey, Bob spent but, the but the time. monetary value in the product is top oh, class, right? It uh, is. Honestly, it is. You know, kudos to, you know, Landy said she got it from someone else, but then she made sure she distributed it, and uh, her products are really well received. And you I mean, can search for Landy and Products of the Hive on YouTube, and you'll find it. And at the end of the video, you'll find the recipes that she has shared. So she's very good with that. What you have to love about Landy is, you know, this is her business, and yet she's still willing to yeah. share her recipes. And yeah, and if you if you're not a beekeeper or whatever, you want to buy it, you go to Goose Rock Farm, her business yeah. here in New Jersey, Montville. Yep. Look it up, and you could buy it from her directly. Best cosmetics, best products of the hive, I yeah. think that I've ever seen. Yep. Yeah. So thanks, Bob, for for stopping by and uh, agreeing to to come in. Your your fans have missed you. <laughs> I get requests all the time. Like some of the, some of my favorite episodes are when you come in and, and chat. And uh, no, I can see why. It's it's always fun to catch up with you. And uh, yeah, don't be a stranger. All right, we're good here. Cheers. Cheers. One more. I think. Going to close out the show. I wanted to offer a comment. It's. The following Sunday after that conversation, and I happened to chat with Bob yesterday, Bob and I were discussing the polyhive. I asked him if he went in and whether it survived the week. He said not only did it survive the week, it seems to be thriving in there. It's doing really well. He put a fondant in next to the bees like he said he would. And we talked about uh, closing that hive up and the thermodynamics after listening to a talk from Etienne Tardif and... One of the things we discussed was saving residual heat. And I think what Bob was going to do is try and find some frames of honey because the frames that he put in that colony or in that hive body for the colony on the outside were empty but drawn. And what we decided was the best way to do as much good for the colony in any residual heat they had was to give them frames of honey. I know he was going to take a frame and hang 
um, some sort of fondant next to the bees so they had something to eat because they really were light on stores. And he was also going to try and find a couple frames of reserved honey and put them to the outside. The point being, if the heat that came off that cluster, as small as it is, could be reserved in some way inside that colony, inside the honey. So the heat given off does get absorbed by the substrate as it passes through, moving out to wherever it's going to go, because heat is always in a transitive state. If some of it could be reserved in the honey to the exterior, then it could be given off back into the colony in times of need, instead of just being empty cells in drawn comb. Now, the comb would serve as a heat sink and do the same thing, but the honey, if it penetrates through the capping and, and warms the honey a little bit, doesn't so much become a honeysickle. So, yeah, I, I don't know, um, just some ideas that we had and we discussed, but the good news is he said that colony seems to be doing okay. It's holding on in there. Now, that's only week one of how many more weeks to go, but, uh, yeah, that colony, as he said, was so small that we we're kind of wondering how many weeks it would make, and he'll keep an eye on it and see how it's doing. This afternoon is the final meeting of the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. It's going to be on Zoom, as it has been. It's our annual meeting. Typically, we do a holiday potluck, but obviously we can't come together. The crew has done their best to put together a slideshow and talks to commemorate what we've done this year and the work uh, that... We did an outreach and other things, and I'm looking forward to that session and getting together with everyone. I wanted to give a shout out to Joe. Uh, Joe's in the hospital right now with COVID and just wishing him the best uh, in recovery. And yeah, just uh, wanted to say that out loud. I have a bunch of stuff prepped for the next couple episodes and another project underway that starts this Wednesday, which I'll talk about when the time comes. So no rest for the weary, but that's the end of this show. Time to close it out. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well, be safe.